Hey, it's good to be back, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity, grateful that you've given uh, Pastor Sean the vacation to be able to go and refresh, and I know he'll return just rip-roaring, ready to go. And uh, I'm, I'm glad this morning that uh, my family could come with me, including my parents who have come from Seattle. So you can thank them for all this rain that they brought with them. <laughs> Uh, you know, this morning we're going to go into the Scriptures. We're going to look at Jesus. And uh, I actually feel a, real, a, a struggle with preaching today's sermon. You know, recently uh, the, ser- the sermon is going to be about Jesus, but we're going to focus the next few weeks on the subject of humility. And... I just have to tell you that I, am, I feel like I'm the least qualified person to speak on humility. Uh, in the last year, I heard a sermon, and as the preacher was preaching, um, I just kind of recognized in what he was speaking just arrogance coming from the preacher. And it was odd because I, I didn't sit in that moment and have any judgment really towards him at all it wasn't there was just this sudden complete and utter embarrassment of having years and years of ministry and recognizing i had been arrogant and so full of pride in so many ways and just not feeling at all qualified to preach now on humility and so We need an expert. We need an expert in humility. And we're going to call upon an expert, and that expert is Jesus. And that expert is Jesus and His Word. And there's no way that any one of us, nobody in the world could stand and get through a sermon on humility if it weren't for Jesus being the ultimate example of humility. So uh, I've called upon Jesus this morning to help me and to help us that our hearts would be willing to receive from Him what we need to hear. I have also called upon three experts for the next three weeks to help me in my studies, to do some reach, research for me, and that those are my three children, Elijah, Jude, and Naomi, some of the best studiers of Scripture that I know, and they each said that they would be willing to take on one week uh, a piece, and so uh, this week Naomi has helped me to study the passage. Next week, Elijah has helped me to study the passage, and the week after that, Jude has helped me to study. So if these sermons are bombs, I will blame them, okay? That's just how it's going to go. But I want to say thanks, uh, kiddos, for your, your help in this. And uh, is that all the things I want to say to begin with? Um, I, I did tell Naomi, if I happen to go down and just just the Lord strikes me now, she has to come up here and finish this thing. So that's on her. <laughs> I'm not feeling so good, no, I'm, no, just kidding. All right, well, with that, with all that preface, let's go to John chapter 1. I want to take a peek into a relationship uh, between two individuals, one of those being Jesus and the other being John the Baptist, who was Jesus's cousin. And as we go into several scriptures today and we look at the relationship between the two, here's a couple questions that I want you to kind of uh, keep in the back of your mind as we go. The first one is this. What does John the Baptist say about Jesus? And then on the flip side, what does Jesus 
say about John the Baptist? Okay, you got those two questions. Can you keep those in your mind as we go through? What does John the Baptist say about Jesus, and what does Jesus say about John the Baptist? So we pick up in John chapter 1. At the beginning of this book, it's declaring that Jesus is God. He's the Word. He's been with God uh, the Father forever, and He's made everything, and it really sets forward who Jesus is. He is God, and we are not. He has made everything, including us. And so it sets him as the supreme creator. And folks, we just have to begin there. The beginning of our discussion has to be that at the center of all things is God. And everything else revolves around him. What we do in our humanity is we flip that and we place ourselves at the center or our ideas at the center or our society at the center, whatever it is at the center, and then everything else, including God, revolves around that. And that's where we get into trouble. And so John starts out right away saying, Jesus is the center. He is God. He's been all for all time. He's made everything. And then we come to verse 6 where it says this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So this begins to set up the relationship between John and Jesus, really defining who they are in this relationship. One, John was not what? He was not the light. Okay? He was not God. Earlier it had said in this, in this chapter, that Jesus was the light, and that light was the life of all men. That life was the light of men. And John was not that. And so as he came upon the scene, and he's this prophet, and he has this mighty ministry, people were beginning to wonder, who are you, John? Are you the one? Are you, it? Are you the one that we have been waiting for? But this right here says he was not the light. He was not central. But it does say this about John. He was a witness to the light. He was the one who bore witness and said, that's the one, that's the guy. It's almost like this. When this morning daylight came up, there was this big ball of fire, which you and I could not see through the rain, but there was this big ball of fire that would come up in our solar system and beam light towards our planet, correct? Tonight, if there happens to be a clearing we will go outside and there will come up another light in the sky, except what is different about that light that will come up? The moon. It's reflecting. It's not actually sharing its own light. It's actually reflecting the light of the sun, which came up this morning. And so the sun is the light. The moon is not the light. It's reflecting the light. And that is the same type of relationship that Jesus and John had. Jesus is the light and John merely reflects him. Everything is a deflection saying, look at that light. He's the one you need to go to. So we pick up the story a little bit later down in the chapter. It says in verse 19, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites, the religious leaders, from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And John confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they said to him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, 
Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And so the people come to John because he was doing amazing things. His ministry was escalating. People were leaving the cities, leaving the towns, and going out on a trip into the wilderness to see this guy and all that was going on, all that he was teaching. And he was baptizing, which would have been a radical radical move. Because up until this time, there had been baptisms happening, but what was happening was the Jews were forcing Gentiles to be baptized as another way of signifying their purification as they entered into the religion of Judaism. So for the Jews, they were saying, oh, the Gentiles have to do that. But when the Jews were coming out to the wilderness, John the Baptist said, no, everybody's got to do this. Why? Because the Lord is evening the playing field so that the Lord's message, His salvation, could come to all hearts, including Jews. And so the Pharisees and the ones that had been sent were wondering, who are you that everybody is coming out to you? Are you the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah that has been prophesied? And John said, no. Are you Elijah? Who many thought to be the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, who was taken up by a chariot of fire. Are you Elijah come back? Because he had been prophesied about in the last book of the Old Testament, 400 years before, that Elijah would come back before the Lord's coming. And John, and remember this, John says, no, I'm, I'm not Elijah. And hold that little tidbit in your mind because Jesus is going to come back to that one later. But John says, I, I'm not Elijah. And they say, well, you, are you the prophet? Moses, who had led them out of slavery, had said, there is going to come one among you who you need to listen to. When he comes from us, listen to him. Are you that guy? Are you the prophet? And John the Baptist says, no. But what he says is, I am the one that Isaiah prophesied about. And he said, to make straight the way of the Lord. That's my job. I'm out in the wilderness crying out, make straight the way of the Lord. Prepare your heart to hear what God is about to do. You need to be ready to listen to him. That's my job. So John's beginning to deflect. He's beginning to say, I'm not him. In fact, did you hear that point? He said, I am so unworthy about the one who's about to come. You may think I'm big with this ministry. You may have traveled a long way because the crowds are coming and you're going to get into the water. But guess what? The one who's coming, I shouldn't even untie his shoe. I shouldn't even be on the ground before him. I shouldn't even touch his feet. He is that awesome. So John is beginning to tell us to look to something else. Well, we get a picture of how he does that, how he begins to deflect towards Jesus. Now in verse 29, it says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the first thing, this is one of the statements I love about John. He says, look! And he begins to point 
You know, he doesn't draw attention to himself. He doesn't say, look at, look at these magic tricks I'm doing. Look at all the people that I've baptized. Look at this ministry that's escalating. He says, take your eyes off of me, and I want you to notice this one who is walking now among you. He is the Lamb of God. To them, that would have been full of meaning, knowing that a lamb was one that would be sacrificed on behalf of others to remove sin. And now there is a man who has the, the, the name of Lamb of God over him, and he says, he's the one who will take away the sin of the whole world. This is not about me. I am but the moon. Look at the sun, is what John is saying. So he says, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So John continues to deflect. He continues to say, this is not about me. In fact, he says, here's a guy who ranks above me. Now we're beginning to learn a little bit of the definition of humility, and that is this, knowing our place. John, in his deflection towards Jesus, begins to say, when it looks like rank, when it is who has the authority, the power, who is it? It is Jesus. And why is that? Because he says, he ranks above me because he was before me. If you go back in the historical record of the relationship between these two being cousins, it is clear that John the Baptist in the flesh was born before Jesus. But John, knowing the Scriptures and knowing who he was, that he was the Son of God, knows that he had existed before that, before he became flesh. So he says, my place is below him. He is everything. He is the Son of God. And I love how that then turns into action because as he knows his place, he then tells his own disciples, these men who had followed him and have participated in ministry, had left things to go and follow John as disciples. He says, behold, the Lamb of God again. And you know what his disciples do? They leave following John and they begin to follow Jesus. You know, nowadays, if you begin to lose followers, what usually begins to happen? Panic. What is wrong? What can we do to get more people to come and, and give us likes on Facebook? What can we do to get more people to come and sit in our pews? What can we do to get more people to keep, keep staying at our place of employment? Because people are just leaving. John isn't concerned about whether the crowds follow Jesus or whether his disciples follow Jesus, because it's all about Jesus. 
He understands His rank. He understands His place. Alright, let's turn over to John chapter 3. Alright, so John uh, continues this. Now, if you are in John 3, you probably recognize that I didn't say John 3.16. That's usually the thing that rattles off our tongue. That's the same chapter, but a different story. We're at the end of chapter 3. Jesus has been out baptizing. In fact, it wasn't Him baptizing. It was His disciples baptizing. But Jesus is out there now, and this is happening there in the wilderness. John has been so incredibly tuned in to what God wants and to make sure that people are living holy. He's been thrown in prison because he opposed uh, the leaders basically stealing a wife from his brother. I mean, it was a messy situation. He opposed that. He got thrown in prison. And so uh, John's in prison at this time. Excuse me, John had not been yet thrown in prison. That happens later before the next story we're going to go to. So John was not yet in prison. So this happens in verse 25. Let's pick it up there. It says, Now discussion arose between some of John's disciples over and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. So they're freaking out because the crowds are going to Jesus. John's not participating in that panic. Look what he says in verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. I love several things in here about what John says. That part in there when he says, look, no one can receive anything. Not even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. I'm not sure we all believe that. I, I mean, we read it on the page, and I know I do. I look at that and I'm like, that, the Bible says it, it's true. But the way that we operate in our daily life because of our self-deception, we totally believe that we can receive things for ourselves if we put that into action. We actually discount what that says, and we read it off the page, but in our spirits, I, I think we're deceived in ourselves sometimes, and we say, well, I can receive some things. If I work hard enough, God will love me more. That's actually in contradiction to this verse. If our church works harder, we will receive more people. We think that we affect everything in this world, and yet this says everything that we receive, it's all from heaven. We cannot receive even one thing. So John says, whatever has come our way, it's actually all from God. And this is another, the next key point in our humility is not only that we know our place, but that in that place, we are utterly dependent on God. There is not one thing that we are not dependent upon God for. I joked earlier that it was my parents who brought the rain from Seattle. 
That, my friends, was my first lie. There is not one of us who can go out and do a rain dance. There's not anybody who becomes a meteorologist. There's nothing that we could do that would bring rain our ways. We see the farmers panic. My wife, who's a gardener and wants the irrigation to go all the way into the fall, panics. We all panic because we understand what happens if rain doesn't come and water our crops and water our gardens. We understand drought is on the way. Famine could be on the way. We've seen it recorded in Scripture and everybody panics and there's nothing that we could do to receive that rain. Why? Because it comes from one place. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. It's from Him. And that's the rain. We somehow think we have a way to control God and manipulate God or manipulate our circumstances to bring everything our way when everything is dependent upon God. We must know our place. And we must know that we are completely dependent upon Him for everything. The thing that comes out against this that we push against this with is our pride. It's our pride. And we say, no, there certainly must be something I can do. There, there, there must be a way that I can change the circumstances and put my own spin and my own power on this. And I heard a preacher said, really? He, he, he said, I lose my keys once a week. And I think I have the power to, to, to do this, to have a place to tell God how to do things. And route. No! We are utterly dependent upon Him. It's silly to think that anything is apart from Him. And John the Baptist is tapping into that. And so I love how he ends. This is one of my favorite Scriptures in all the Bible with that verse 30 when he says, He must increase and I must decrease. That is the path that our life should be taking. That is the direction. Then everything, Jesus should be increasing in our life and we should be decreasing to the point that we understand that we are but a humble vessel and if we are going to have any value, if we are going to have any effect, if we are going to be able to serve and if we are going to be able to do anything, whether it's preach a sermon, sing a song, raise our kids, go to work, it is because we're a vessel and He increases Himself in us because He is everything. He is the all in all. And we just have this honor of having God dwell in us. He must increase and we must decrease. John got it right. Just yesterday, we went uh, to Winco. We were in need of getting some chocolate-covered peanuts and different things, hairspray, and you know all the important things. <clears throat> and I noticed as we came back to our car, there was a car parked uh, somewhat next to ours, and on the back was a, was a sticker. Most bumper stickers I just ignored. This one caught my attention. The timing was amazing because on there were the letters H-E and then a sign that looked like this and then a lowercase I. Can anybody figure out that code? 
capital H, capital E, with a little mouth that looked like an alligator, and a lowercase i. What did that say? He is greater than I. And I was like, But what I thought about was, that makes total sense. When we are in church and we've heard the sermon and God has convicted us and we we stand and we, we say it's His way and it's His will and we raise our hands and we sing the song, we're like, yes, everything is about you. Yes. But because that car was sitting in the grocery parking lot, I wondered, what does he greater than I mean when we walk into Winco? Because it's easy to submit things at the church and things that are religious to God, right? The ministry. It's much harder to submit your grocery list to Jesus unless he's demanded it by your budget, right? You go in there, what what does he greater than I mean in the way that you interact with people in the parking lot or in Winco? What does it mean with the small talk you make with the grocery clerk? What does it mean with the types of things you're buying? What does it mean with the conversation you're having with your spouse or your kids or your friend as you're walking through the store? That he is greater than I affects everything that goes on in the grocery store, including the fact that we We're completely dependent on God sending rain and growing the crops and the farmers having the ability to harvest those things and it being packaged and sitting on the shelves. We had no part in that. It is all about him. He is greater than I and it has effect in Winco. And I love how he reminds us of that because until we understand that, and I think it will be for the rest of eternity, It was certainly in this life to understand he must increase and we must decrease. But he he allows us to go through difficult things, not because he enjoys toying with us and not because he enjoys us having hardship, but the reason that Lisa could come and give a testimony of the difficulty of going through the struggle of what's going to happen with my job wasn't because he enjoyed watching her weep. And wasn't because he enjoyed watching her panic and have stress and lose sleep. What he desired was for her through that process to go, he is greater than I. At the end of the day, was it about a paycheck? He would said whatever he need or uh, whatever he deemed needed for Lisa to continue to live what was most important and which she testified to, which I loved, Lisa, was that you said it's, he, he wanted me to know that he would provide, that it all comes from him. And she carries that with her into the next season of life saying, you know, guess what happened last time? I was in utter need. There was nothing I could do. And that's what God does over and over and over. He puts us into a place where there's no way on earth this could ever happen unless God who gives everything, I am completely dependent on Him, He gave it. That's why when Israel left Egypt and they're in slavery and they have the most powerful army on the planet chasing after them, do you know where God took them? He pinned them in on the edge of the sea. I mean, I'm no war strategist. I was pretty good at, 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 at uh, tag. 
And the worst place to go and tag is the place that you can't escape from. And yet God took His people and pinned them in at the sea. Why did He do that? It's because continually throughout the book of Exodus and throughout the Scriptures, it says that He does these things so that people will know that He is Lord. There was no way out of that situation except the Lord of hosts went and parted the Red Sea, took His people through it when there was no other way, and when the the greatest army on earth chased in after them, He plunged them into the waters and destroyed them like that. And it says that the people of Israel stood on the other side and watched them. And they sang a song about how the chariots and Pharaoh and them were now in the sea. He put them in a situation where there was no other way out. The only way was for God to deliver them, for them to receive from God what only He could do. So John declares, He must increase and I must decrease. Well, this has been a lot of John talking about Jesus. Let's look at what Jesus says about John. I want you to turn with me, if you have your Bible, to Matthew chapter 11. This is the part John has been thrown in prison. And John has sent his disciples to Jesus to make sure that he was the one. To to just really, he wanted to be encouraged. Yep, he was in jail because Jesus was the one. And Jesus gives evidence by healing by doing different things and says to his disciples, you know, go back and tell John what you saw so that he can be encouraged. It's me. And then as they leave, we're going to pick up with the conversation that Jesus has with the crowd standing there. In verse 7, it says this, as they went away, John's disciples, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That, my friends, is amazing. We have been looking at what John has said about Jesus saying, He must increase, I must decrease. Behold the Lamb of God. He is the Son of God. I testify and bear witness to that. Yes, go follow Him. I was preparing the way for Him. He ranks before me because He was before me. John is all about Jesus. And now Jesus turns around and talks about John and says, hey, what did you think you were going to get with him? Some weak, soft dude out here? No. This guy was running around in camel hair and a leather belt. He was a strong prophet. And he was fulfilling what was spoken about him. That he would be the messenger sent before to prepare the way. And then he says this. Did you catch this, what he said about John the Baptist? He says in verse 11, among you, 
Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's amazing. That is absolutely incredible that Jesus would talk about John and say, of all the people who have ever been born, and there's been a lot of people born, haven't, hasn't there? Lots and lots of people. No one. No one greater than John the Baptist. Now it's easy suddenly to go, oh, greatness. Well, how do I, how, what does it take to become great? Our society is infatuated with greatness. What can we do to prop up? How do we take our heroes and prop them? I'm, I admit, I love watching the NBA Finals. And boy, how we elevate our heroes, don't we? All it takes is 39 points in one game. The greatest ever born. What if that's all it took? You know what? John the Baptist is the greatest who's ever been born. Why? Because he scores 39 points a game. Doesn't it just sound ridiculous when we talk like that? But what does Jesus say? He's the greatest who's ever been born. And then he actually tells us why. He gives us an indication what it is about John that was so great. It says then, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. It's this difficult thing to understand about the kingdom of God when everything is turned on its head. Remember when Jesus says, in the kingdom of God, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. In the kingdom of God, he says here, you want to be great? You become the least. You understand your place. You understand that whenever you take a greater place of leadership, of ministry, what your place is is not becoming the greater king. Your job is to become the greater servant. If you want to be great, you become humble. You become least. It is always He greater than I. And the quicker we understand that, the greater usefulness we have to our King, which is the greatest place to serve Him to the uttermost. So John understands that he needed to be humble. That pride needed to be removed. And as a result, he clearly was able to say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The sin of the world. And what's magnificent about that is we don't and should not come away from these passages going, let me be just like John. There's actually someone greater. That's who we've been talking about. Because actually, the greatest illustration of humility that we have is Jesus Himself, isn't it? The One who does rank before us. The One who is the Son of God. The One who created all things. The One who participates in helping us to receive what we need from heaven. It says that He actually left heaven and humbled Himself and came to earth to do what we could not do for our sin. Many of you probably know this passage out of Philippians. 
He's talking to a group of people who need to remember to put others before themselves, to have that place of being the least, of serving others. And he says this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and onward, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let me ask a quick question. How many of you are doing a stellar job at that? I am not real good at it. I'm very selfish. And so he goes on to <clears throat> encourage them in verse 4, let each of you not uh, look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. This is really, really hard, God. You're giving us some difficult things to do. And then God plays his trump card by having Paul write the next few verses. Because there is none of us who could say, wait, things are getting too difficult. Putting my family above myself is, that's no. Putting these people that are really irritating as more significant than myself, uh-uh. But then he plays the trump card. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, now he's talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and he found, uh, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. That is bonkers, friends. That when we would ever give an excuse to God, but there's no reason why I should make these people more significant. Their interests should not become before mine. God says, wait a second. I considered your interest. Jason, I considered you significant. And so I took my son and Jesus went and he emptied himself and became a servant and humbled himself, not just to come and walk dusty Jewish roads, not just to have conversations with irritating Pharisees and stubborn Jewish people and, and to have to help Gentiles. No. It was because I sent him as the Lamb of God. Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, gave up his rights and humbled himself and so much so, it says, even to the point of death. Remember, Paul says this, have that mind among yourselves. That the amount of humility that we should have in the way that we interact with God and knowing our place and our dependence upon Him and the way that comes out in the way that we treat others. This says that Jesus went to the point of death. Would you die for that? Would I die for that? That's, that's a tough place. And yet that's what Jesus did. It doesn't end there though. It says after the cross, verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every knee so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus goes to death. He is raised. 
And it says he goes and he sits at the right hand of the Father. He's exalted on high and every, every creature and everything on all, in all the universe should be praising him. He deserves all of our praise. He is exalted. And the first place we go to begin that, to exalt Jesus, is to decrease The hardest part for us in decreasing and understanding that we're prideful and need humility is this. We're usually the last people to recognize it about ourselves, right? Everybody else in the world could see be like, Jason's a total jerk. He is so arrogant. I was probably the last to know about some of that. So how do you deal with it if you don't even know about it? We get on our face and we ask for the Lord's help. Because He gives everything, including insight into our own evil, wicked hearts. And so this morning, you might be sitting here saying, like, I, I don't need humility. If that's your attitude, you're the first one who needs humility. I say that from personal experience. There's not one person in here who could raise their hand and say, I don't have pride. It's what we're all cursed with. And if you're wondering, how do I go to that place and ask and understand my place and that I desperately need Him for everything, while you're on your knees and you're bowing before Him and you're exalting Him, go through a practice of thanksgiving. Thank You, Lord. Just begin. thank Him for the rain. Thank Him for the opportunity to worship Him. Thank Him for the goodness of coming and dying on our behalf as the Lamb of God in our place so that we could then have sin removed from us, God's wrath removed from us, that we might just begin to thank Him for all those things and you begin to recognize I'm completely helpless without Him. And that drives our heart to the right place of decreasing, that He might be increasing. I want to close with a psalm. And then we'll have the worship worship team come and help lead us. But I think this leads into what it means to worship together with this type of heart that we're called to. Psalm 34 Verses 1-3 through say, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. That's what we're called to today. That we might bless the Lord that we might exalt His name together. And sometimes you might need to talk to yourself. Do you recognize we were quoting some psalms in one of our earlier songs? And this happens throughout the psalms when it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Isn't that a curious phrase? It's as if David's having to beat his chest. Soul, wake up. Bless the Lord. O my soul, would you just recognize what you need to do right now? Bless the Lord. 
I see our heroes in the finals sink a shot and they run down the court beating their chest because they've accomplished something. But as we recognize what the Lord has done, what we're called to is to beat our soul and say, oh, sore, it is time to bless the Lord and say, He is everything. And so would you give Him thanks with me this morning? Father, we're grateful for what You've done. We're grateful for the example that You've given us in the relationship between John and Jesus. Father, we pray that You would give us hearts that we cannot give ourselves. We cannot receive even one thing, including hearts that are ever becoming less so that You can be, uh, be everything in us. And we know that's when our hearts are full. That's what your desire is for us because that's the best place. And so, Father, we pray that you would grant us now the opportunity in Jesus' name to lift up our voices, that we would exalt you, that we would worship you, that we would consider what it means to have you increase and have us decrease in this moment. And what it means as we exit today and go have lunch and as we go to the grocery store and to our job this week, that we might... Continue to consider the different ways that you want us to recognize that you are Lord. And so, Lord, we pray that we would bend our knees to you. That we would know our place. And that we would ask you to give what's needed. In Jesus' name, amen.